we stand in the presence of God's word. <clears throat> After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. As I read this passage over and over in our New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, I couldn't believe I was not finding one of Matthew's favorite words. One of his favorite words we would write in our alphabet as I-D-O-U. In Greek, it has a rough breathing mark, which is an apostrophe turned backward, if you would, and it is pronounced hedu, hedu. Matthew loves it. So I got out my big concordance on the Greek New Testament and began counting the times that Matthew uses this word. I counted 62 times in 28 chapters, an average of a little more than two per chapter. Yet here is the story of all stories. That Easter Sunday morning, surely the word would be there. And I discovered, in fact, it is there four times. In the first eight verses of this passage, Matthew uses the word hidu four times. Why does it not appear in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible? I suspect that those who translated for us were acting like our English teachers in high school, saying, you're using the word very too many times, you're using the word very too many times, or you're putting in too many uh, commas, don't put a comma just because it seems to be the right thing to do. Know for sure whether it's the right thing or not. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> this word hidu means behold. Behold. He uses it four times in this passage. Let me lift up four things for you. Number one, Jesus appeared to these two women and said, Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now, in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, we have not seen nor heard from the disciples since Thursday night. On Thursday night, with the kiss of Judas to betray him and the coming of the enemy, the disciples fled. We have not seen them nor heard from them since Thursday night. And yet Jesus says, first thing, behold, tell my brothers, I'm on the way to Galilee there they will see me. When we open the new Jubilee Center, Sherry Goodwin and those who work with her in our history and archives department went through 
thousands of photographs this church has collected in the last 114 years and picked out some to be framed and placed on the walls in the corridors of the new Jubilee Center. If you walk through there someday, just looking at them, you'll find some that are just for fun. Precious little children hunting Easter eggs. You'll see a children's choir's picture, the youth choir, chapel choir picture. You'll see the chancel choir pictured a number of times. You'll see men's basketball teams when Boston Avenue won the church league one year. But then there's some really serious ones. There's a photograph there of a German Lutheran pastor, Martin Niemöller, with Bishop Finus Crutchfield. When Pastor Niemöller came to this church, preached from this pulpit on that same tour of the United States, he also preached at Southern Methodist University at our School of Theology. And because great writers write about things they know and great preachers preach about things they've experienced, I'm sure I heard the same sermon you heard if you were here back in the early 60s. Pastor Niemöller told his story time after time. In World War I, he was the commander of a submarine. He shot down with torpedo one night a ship, and as the sun was rising, he and his commanding officers could see dozens of men, enemy men, but men nonetheless struggling in the water. They were going to drown. These officers said to Commander Niemöller, these men are going to drown. We need to rescue them. He said, go the other way. But sir, go the other way. And the submarine turned and left, and they all drowned. When the war was over, this young commander could not get that picture out of his mind that he had allowed these dozens of men, now defenseless, to drown in the cold waters of the North Atlantic. A couple of years later, he entered the seminary at Munster. He became a Lutheran pastor. When he was only 31, he was pastoring a very prestigious Lutheran church in the suburbs of Berlin. And three years later, Adolf Hitler came to power with his Nazis. It took a while for Pastor Niemöller to realize what was going on, but once he realized, he began to speak out more and more loudly and in 1937, the Nazis came. They threw him into the concentration camp at Sachsenhausen. He was there four years. And then they transferred him to one they were building even bigger at Dachau. He was there the next four years until the liberation forces arrived, some of them Oklahomans who liberated the camp at Dachau. And after he was liberated, the war being over, he became a pastor again. And he came to the United States and told this story again and again. One of the parts we remember best, this. They came for the communist, and I didn't speak up because I was not a communist. They came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I was not a Jew. They came for the Roman Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was not a Catholic. And by the time they came for me, there was no one to speak up. But then he would say, there are times when all I can see are young Navy men floundering in the North Atlantic and I giving the order to go the other way. 
There are times when I can see the ovens, the gas chambers, and think if I'd only spoken out sooner, louder, more powerfully. But in those dark moments of my soul, I hear the risen Christ say, My brother, my brother Martin, let's deal with next time. Let's deal with next time. Number two, the angel said to the two women, Go quickly now, tell the disciples what you have seen. The Lord is risen. He will meet them in Galilee. And the women, with fear and great joy, went quickly and ran to tell. Now this year I'm going to be preaching from the Gospel of Matthew. We will deal with virtually every paragraph of Matthew's Gospel. And I will remind you from time to time that when Matthew wrote, we believe he had in front of him at least three documents. The Gospel of Mark, it was written earlier, it is briefer. We're almost sure he had it there in front of him because sometimes he copies from Mark a whole paragraph in Greek without changing even a single word. We know that he has in front of him the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Scriptures because he quotes from it from time to time. And it's not the Hebrew rendering, it's definitely the Greek translation that he uses. We believe he has in front of him another document that the German scholars centuries ago started calling the quella, the source, mostly parables, other teaching material. Luke uses it extensively in his gospel, so does Matthew. And they'll sometimes have whole paragraphs where they don't differ from each other, even one word. But as Matthew is following Mark's basic outline, from time to time he adds to or takes away because he didn't think Mark told it right. Didn't get it quite right, and Matthew thinks he can do it better. For example, in this passage, he's copying along from Mark, word for word, and suddenly Mark says, And the women who were afraid went quietly and told no one. And Matthew says, That's not right. That's not right. They surely were afraid, but what joy must have filled their hearts. To hear this message, he is not dead, he has been raised. They would have had to go with great joy, and they went quickly as they had been told, and they ran to tell the disciples what they had seen. Sue Monk Kidd wrote a book last year, 2006, called First Light. And she remembers in this book some of the stirrings in her own life, stirrings of faith. She describes in one chapter the funeral for her grandmother. She said, after the funeral was concluded in the church and we went to the cemetery, I was seated there with the closest members of the family under the tent, waiting for others to get out of their cars and hover in close so that the minister could read appropriate scriptures and say a closing prayer. But as I sat there waiting those few moments, I realized it was the first day of spring. The grass was so green and freshly mowed. Dogwoods blooming, azaleas blooming. Red buds in full bloom, sun shining. And I thought, how appropriate a day for my grandmother to go home. Two images, she said, came immediately to my mind. My favorite picture of my grandmother, she said, was on my mother's wedding day, her daughter. A photographer took a picture of my mother, resplendent in her white gown, hair carefully done, face wonderfully made up. She's ready to walk out of that bride's room down the main aisle of the church. And there's my mother beaming, looking at her. 
My mother not in white, uh, my grandmother not in white, my grandmother in lavender, she said. She was wearing lavender, and she had a huge hat that people used to wear with lots of chiffon lavender on it and sort of jauntily cocked on the side of her head. It was my grandmother, she said. The other image, the night before Easter, when I was eight years old, a new dress for me, new patent shoes for me. And my mother had taken the skeleton of an old umbrella and had made me a parasol. Lavender, of course. A lavender parasol. And when I got on my new dress and my new shoes and my parasol and started walking across the room in front of my mother and my grandmother, I knew how a peacock feels. (laughs) And just as I started across the room, my grandmother said, Why don't you twirl that thing a little bit? And my mother said, now, mother, you've got to help me here. Sue, you cannot open that thing tomorrow in church. You cannot. It's for coming from the parking lot to the front door, from the front door back to the car when church is over. Do you understand me? And my grandmother whispered, maybe in Sunday school. And so she said the next morning, I walked from the parking lot to the church with my lavender parasol, twirling it as I went. I closed it when I went inside, but when the Sunday school class had begun, I was sitting right next to a window with the warm sun coming through, and I opened my parasol and twirled it. As I sat there, with all these beautiful flowers, green grass, and the sun shining, I could see my grandmother with that lavender hat cocked on the side of her head, twirling her parasol as she went to meet the Lord. Number three. And behold, Matthew says, Jesus met them. Behold, Jesus met them. The scholars say that Matthew is trying to convey to his readers several decades later that when one does the right things, When one does what one has been told to do by the Almighty, behold, Jesus meets you there. These women were told by the angel, go quickly now and tell the disciples what you've just seen and heard. Matthew says, and they went quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell. And behold, Jesus met them. Recently, there was a book review in the Wall Street Journal, uh, a biography of a famous economist whose name I didn't know. His name was Josef Schumpeter. Josef was not born in this country. He was born in Austria, a very small village in Austria. His parents, a good Roman Catholic family, they saw that young Josef was baptized. They saw that he was confirmed, kept him close to the church all of his growing up years. He went away to the University of Vienna, and after graduating there, at age 26, uh, was already Secretary of State of Finance for the whole country of Austria. At 30, he became president of one of its largest and strongest banks. He worked really hard. Economics was his field. He believed in free enterprise. He believed in the capitalistic system. He was borrowing enough money that he thought was safely borrowing and starting one new business after another, one new business after another, and then 1924 came. 
and the Austrian stock market fell five years before the one in New York fell, and he lost everything. He had two big homes out in the country in different places, horses, places to swim and fish. It's gone. All of it gone. Not only that, he was deeply in debt. He resolved to pay back every creditor he had. The only good job he could get with the economy in ruins was speaking, speaking on economics of how free enterprise and capitalism were the way back. Uh, but he would speak in one city and then he'd need to be in another city and another. And the best way to get there was by train. So he was gone all the time on the train, one city after another, after another. Lecture, lecture, lecture. Took him 12 years to pay back all of those from whom he had borrowed money. And then something wonderful happened to him. He was almost 42 years old. He met the woman he had been looking for all of his life. She was 20 years younger, but she fell as madly in love with him as he with her. They were married, and almost immediately she conceived. And they were so excited about having their first baby nine months later. Eight months into the pregnancy, Yosef's mother suddenly got sick and died. And a month later, when he was still grieving the death of his mother, his young wife went into labor, and both she and the baby died. He was shattered, shattered, still owing so many people so much money at that point. Now having lost his mother, his wife, and his baby, he started going to the cemetery every day, finding a time every day that he could go to the cemetery. And he prayed to the wife, if you would, to intercede for him. He used a term of endearment in German called Hazen. And he would say to her, meine Hazen, meine Mutter, he would pray. And he would talk to them every day. And then at nighttime before he slept, he would write in his diary what had happened to him that day. And then... He got an invitation from Harvard University to come to the United States of America and be a professor. And he moved to Harvard. For the rest of his adult life, he taught there. Uh, students filled the lecture halls wherever he was speaking, and the faculty mumbled sometimes that he spent so much time with each of his students. Anyone who wanted to see him could see him. Anyone who wanted to talk with him could talk with him. What else did he have to do? Who else did he have in the world but these students of his? And when he was 65, he was elected head president of the American Association of Economists. He stood and spoke in that great hall in his inauguration. And when he got through, people jumped to their feet and applauded. And that night he wrote in his diary, Meine Hasen und mein Gott. Danke. Danke. I thank you. I thank you. When you do the right things in the right ways, behold, Jesus will meet you. Number four. This messenger from God Almighty who came to the women that day, who rolled away the stone and sat down on it, this one said to them, I know who you're looking for. Jesus, the crucified one. He is not here. He has been raised. And all the scholars say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all trying to say that we want to know that the one who died is the same one who's been raised. 
And so in their accounts, they try to help us understand that he was changed. He could appear in an upper room without a key to locked doors. But he could eat a piece of bread with them. He ate fish with them. He asked them to see his hands if they wanted, see his feet if they needed, touch his pierced side if that was necessary for them to believe. So he was changed, but he was the same. Dr. Eugene Peterson translates, I know the one you're looking for, Jesus, who was nailed to the cross. He's not here. He's been raised. There are special people to me buried down at Carthage, Texas. One is my grandfather on my mother's side. When I was barely two, my father was drafted into World War II in 1943. My little sister was a month old. When he was drafted, sent to Germany in time, fought with the 86th Black Hawk Infantry Division, was in Birch's Garden the day the war was ended. His unit was picked up and sent to join MacArthur's army in the Philippines to get ready to invade Japan. We had to go live with my mother's parents. She was their baby. They had so little. They were sharecroppers. They lived in a very modest, meager little house on the edge of a big, big farm that belonged to somebody else. There was no natural gas in their house, no butane a wood-burning fireplace, a wood-burning stove, no electricity, kerosene, lamps. But my grandfather became very special to me. When I got a little bit bigger, he taught me how to fish. And he was a good fisherman, so it was always fun to go with him because he could catch them. When he plowed the garden with a mule, he would set me up on the mule, showed me how to hold on tightly to the harness, and I could be with him whatever he was doing. His only transportation was to hook a slide up behind the mule, sort of like a sled, but no snow and ice, just on dirt. Beside the road, he would go on the slide to town and back. I got to ride on the slide lots of times. We all survived World War II. My father came home. We went back to the little natural gas company where Dad had worked, back into the company house. And five years later, my granddad had gone fishing with a buddy of his one day. He's getting along in years by that time, and the buddy started to pull across the highway into their home, and my granddad, no, 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 just drop me off here on this side of the road. And so he did, and my grandfather started across the highway, 59, holding up his stringer of fish to show my grandmother who had walked out onto the front porch, and a car hit him and killed him. My first experience with death but I remember it. I was only nine and a half, but I remember it. They embalmed him and brought his body back into the house. Family started gathering. I would hear adults, where was he hit? One would say, where was he hit? Come, they'd take him out to the highway and show them the skid marks on the pavement. How far did it knock him? Down to that mailbox down there, oh my. You think he suffered? No, no, the doctor said he was killed instantly. I was hearing all these things. And then we buried him. My grandmother Biggs was very special to me. Her name, Martha Elizabeth. And so most everybody in our little community called her either Cousin Elizabeth or Ms. Lizzie. All the grandchildren called her Ma Lizzie. 
she was very special to me, and I always felt I was special to her. I was older son of only son. She had five daughters, just one son, my dad. And she always treated me as if I were somebody very special. My grandfather died when I was just an infant, and she was trying to keep up a 50-acre farm with an old mule. On Saturdays when I was in elementary school, my mother would take me out there to work all day with my grandmother. I would work in the summertime with her. She tried to motivate me by saying that if I could pick as many peas as she could, as many tomatoes as she could, dig as many potatoes as she could, she'd pay me double. I never could pick as many, dig as many as she could. Tried really hard, never could. She was almost 70. I was 8, 9, 10. I couldn't pick as many as she could. But she treated me as if I were very important. She talked to me about the neighbors, probably told me things I wasn't supposed to hear. That fellow down there, she said, I think he's philandering. I see his car. He comes home far too late at night all by himself. You know that woman down there not taking good care of her kids. I tell you, I see those kids dirty. They should have clean clothes. I don't care how many or how few you got. You can wash them. You can iron them and so on. But at the end of the day, when all the animals had been fed, eggs gathered. She would cook supper for us. I loved her fried pies. She always seemed to have dried fruits, dried apricots, dried apples, dried peaches. And you can make great fried pies if you know how to do it. She knew how to do it. The Sunday morning, just before I graduated from high school, that I went forward and told my pastor I felt I was being called to preach. When he announced it to the congregation, she shouted. I'd never heard anybody do that in a Methodist church. I don't think I've heard anybody do that since in a Methodist church. But she shouted that Sunday morning. And years later, when I'd completed all of my college work and my graduate work and was a young pastor in Houston, I hugged her when I was leaving to go back to Houston late one day. And she said, I never put my feet on the floor. I never close my eyes at night without praying for you. Don't always know where you are. But I want you to know, every morning I pray for you, every night I pray for you. One month after our Jason was graduated from medical school, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer. My dad was a big, strong man. He grew up working on a farm. I came along when one played sports and lifted weights, and I never had the biceps he had, never had shoulders as broad as he had. As a boy, I, I remember growing up seeing him work with the men in that gas camp. Back then, they cemented new wells, 100-pound sack of cement at a time. They used big trucks now, of course, instant mix and so on, but not then. They poured 100-pound sacks of cement down into the well, and it took forever, bag after bag after bag of 100-pound sacks, and my father could be there longer than any of them. He was amazingly strong man. He went through Germany, he went to the Philippines, and he came home alive and well. And now he had cancer. He went to MD Anderson Hospital, and they did the best they could. They valiantly tried to save his life, but 18 months later, he died. When he was diagnosed, he weighed 210 pounds. When he died, he weighed 80 pounds. And we buried him. Six grandsons carrying the casket to the grave. Our daughter's buried there. Burying one's child is a hard thing. When I baptized your baby girls, I remember when we baptized ours. When I handed your little girl a third grader's Bible, I remember when I handed Allison hers. 
when I lay my hands on your sixth graders' heads and say, I confirm you in the faith and fellowship of all true disciples of Jesus Christ. I remember when I laid my hands on her head. So when I walk into the cemetery, I really need to hear Jesus say, I know who you're looking for. They are not here. They have been raised. Amen.